0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with the whole usual crew. We have our film critic Richard Lawson. Hello. Our digital director, Mike Hogan.
1: Hey,
2: guys.
0: And our senior staff writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi. So we've gathered to talk about two major events involving white guys beating each other down in war, uh, which is, of course, Game of Thrones and Dunkirk. And life. Yes. Well, both of them feature pop stars in them. We we can come up with other parallels between Game of Thrones and Dunkirk. So Dunkirk is the Christopher Nolan movie that is kind of the big movie opening this weekend. Although, as we'll talk about, there are some other interesting ones out there. But I thought we'd start with Game of Thrones. We discussed it briefly last week because Joanna had been at the premiere. And obviously, Game of Thrones is a big deal for all of us. But now that the season premiere has aired, we've all seen it. We've all kind of seen where the season is going. Uh, We thought we'd just dive into it briefly because we all love the show and want to talk about it. Mike, I haven't talked to you Really, at all about the Game of Thrones premiere? I don't know uh, where you stand on the show at this point, so I'm kind of curious about what you thought of where uh, where we landed back in Westeros.
2: I I was I thought it was a good episode. It kicked everything off. I was excited to see everybody. I was glad we got some Daenerys at the end. I liked the whole "shall we begin" thing. I can't I can't keep track of. I mean the 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 intro thing is helpful to remind you about like when the Hound is burying some skeleton. You're like, oh yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that. Thank God for Joanna and her like 17 explainer pieces, because between Game of Thrones and Twin Peaks, like I literally don't know what I'm looking at until afterwards when I go on VF.com and read what jo- Joanna's explanations. But I thought it was good. I, I, I mean, I was excited. It's like, it's just fun. There's not that many shows. I can't think of another show uh, at this point where you're just like so psyched. It's like the Super Bowl. You know for this thing coming back so I have no complaints and I didn't even mind the Ed Sheeran thing I guess there's a whole world of people who are upset about that I'm whatever it's Ed Sheeran he's fine
1: what were people so upset about with the Ed Sheeran thing I couldn't really it's like a cameo is not that like a new thing was it just that it took it was so obviously him that it took them out of the world was that it?
3: I think that's the main complaint and the cameos that they've had in the past have been really subtle and just like less famous people like Gary Lightbody, like that's not going to stick out for you. You know, like you might not even know until after you see the episode that that's who you were looking at. Ed Sheeran's just a more famous person and he was given actual lines of dialogue. And um, and I think he's he the-
0: saying, you know, you even if you don't recognize him, you might hear his voice and be like, oh, yeah, that guy.
3: I liked his singing, but, and, and I actually didn't mind the cameo at all, to be honest with you. Like when I was in the premiere, I knew he was in this episode. And when I was in the premiere, he starts singing, like he's off screen when you hear him singing. And I just started laughing. <laughs> so I was Like, here we go. Here comes Ed Sheeran. <laughs> um, and I thought he was fine, you know? But yeah, I think that, I think it is sort of like this super famous person in, in a show that has a history of building its world around non-famous actors um, for the most part. And there's all the meta layer of the fact that Maisie Williams is like a huge Ed Sheeran fan, which I do think kind of came through in that scene. Like it was sort of thematic because Arya's character is supposed to be having like kind of a good time with these guys. But, you know, Maisie was not, I think, She was performing like a little bit more giddily than she usually does. And I think that was just because she was performing with a pop star she really admires. But like it's five minutes. So I don't understand being angry about five minutes of a TV show. I don't know.
2: Also, in my opinion, Maisie and Sophie Turner cannot do anything wrong. Those two characters are so great. And um, I mean, the opening scene was just totally what you wanted from Game of Thrones. And then I enjoyed, even though it was totally unrealistic and silly. I enjoyed like um, John Snow and Sansa like bickering in front of everybody, <laughs> and poor John Snow being like, "We could, you know, we can't do this in front of the whole group."
0: Well, you don't feel like that's realistic. I feel like that's like every power dynamic I've ever seen is that like someone brings something up in front of the group that they should have taken privately, and then the person in charge gets mad. It's like every like middle manager in America. John Snow just trying to get everyone in line.
2: I guess that's actually true. Yeah. I mean, she shouldn't be operating that way, but of course I guess people do.
3: Yeah. They, I mean, the, these guys really need to come up with like a pre-meeting strategy. They're
0: <laughs> on the same page in front of their employees. Just, just get slack guys. Just take yeah. the DMS, take care of it. And yeah. Then hash prepared. it out. Hash it out.
3: <laughs> you, and be on
2: the but, same page. That's all. I mean, the whole, the whole show is basically like prepping for a gigantic war on 15 fronts across the entire world. Um, But this one really did have that feeling of like, oh, man, like su- sh- shit is going to go down like all over
1: the place, which I which I, I enjoy that. I think that that's fun. Yeah, you can feel the budget kind of just like teeming like it's just, like, <laughs> like it's just like there's just like money swirling around. You're like, oh, this is going to be big.
0: I, never, I don't get the people. And I, Joanna, I think you might have had this complaint a little bit that like, that there's so much scene setting that we're kind of watching all of the characters move into place of where they need to be. And uh, Joanna, you also pointed out that stuff like the Hound and watching his character development, even though I also did not remember that house or the people in it. Uh, I feel like just watching everyone get into place is really fun. Like, I've, we've been with these characters for so long that I don't mind that, like, Arya's not really doing anything after she kills out the phrase. And if she's traveling for five episodes a season, that's cool because I want to see what Arya's up to.
3: I mean, I don't think she will be. I think this season is going to, you know, it's only seven episodes and 13 episodes total left of the show, so I think things are going to start going really fast, but that is a huge criticism of my part. I heard a lot of people who didn't like this episode because they felt like nothing happened, which just blows my mind because, I don't know, an entire house was assassinated,
2: so I don't know what to tell you, but um, <laughs> the-, it's, it's the... It's the first act of the Blues Brothers, like they're getting the band back together, you know? Yeah, gonna- yeah
3: exactly. But yeah, exactly. Like I think the best example of this is the Hound where like the show for you know for whatever reason needs the Hound and Thoros and Beric these these characters who are like tertiary characters to get up north but the fact that it took time for them to have this protracted scene where they talk about sort of like cosmic justice and fate and mortality and religion and all this sort of stuff, that felt like old school Thrones to me, which I really like, which is just like people talking in rooms, which is different from massive wildfire explosions, which is also fun. But like, I like this people talking in rooms thing. And and the fact that they took the time on this journey north to have this moment for these characters who aren't our main characters, I thought was Great storytelling. I thought it was really good.
1: That, that scene, those scenes in particular with the hound, felt very true to what the books are like. I mean, I've always thought that the books, something I really like about them is that they're really about history and there's this sort of like sadness everywhere, like time has passed and people have died. And, and this that was a really nice reflective bit, you know, kind of couple of scenes where we're sort of getting an emotional sense of like what's been lost in any kind in of all the anonymous people who died in these many wars that we've seen. So I thought that that was a really considering that we're now past the original material from the books. I thought that was a really nice kind of thematic continuation of, of what I think makes the books really good. Also, nobody says the C word like Rory McCann as the hound. <laughs> this is true. I mean,
2: I just want a gif of that with audio. Can, I you, mean, can somebody, is Rory that possible? Rory McCann's
3: amazing. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Richard, and, and with Mike. Both very <laughs> equally good points about, about this great scene. And and I, you know, I've said elsewhere, I really don't know how much I'm in the tank for this episode because I saw it at the premiere on the big screen with the orchestra and all the people who are really excited to see it. Like, I don't know how much that flavored my opinion. I'll be interested to see if there's any sort of drop-off in my opinion uh, this Sunday. But I'm I'm very, I've kind of gotten to a place where I've let go of my previous like obsessively comparing it to the books because as richard points out we're just like shot way past the books. This is a different show now. It's not as good in my opinion as the show was the first four seasons when it was more, you know, adapting a, a book series that's that's very very good. But it's still one of the best shows on television. It's a different show. It's not as good, in my opinion, but it's still one of the best. So, like, we can enjoy, or I can enjoy watching it. Oh, the other thing I want to say to bring it back to our, our theme of this podcast, our alleged theme of this podcast, which is award season, is that executive producer Brian Cogman on Twitter revealed on Sunday that John Bradley, who plays Samuel Tarley, who had to do that protracted montage, <laughs> disgusting montage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> filmed that over three days last year while the rest of the cast was at the Emmys winning all the awards. <laughs> oh. So extra love for John Bradley for having to do that. Instead That's of like going so to the staying in
0: character as Sam too, that he just like stays back and does the drudgery while everyone else parties. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. I thought that montage was so interesting compared to what this show normally does. Like, I feel like I've never seen anything quite that like visually inventive in that way. That was very Breaking Bad, in a way, for Game of Thrones. Uh, I, yeah. loved, I loved them changing up their style.
3: Yeah, I think last season with the introduction of the finale, the set to Ramin Djawadi's Light of the Seven, which is like a really slow sort of... Tension building introduction that to me felt unlike anything they'd ever done, and I was really pleased to see them sort of experimenting a little bit. And this this uh, you know poop montage also for better or for worse <laughs> also felt like an experimentation. And so it's it's fun to see them feel like it you know sort of test their boundaries in their last thirteen hours or plus of of television.
1: I called it um poop soup stomp. No, I <laughs> had this like rhythmic. <laughs> sort of quality to it there have been um, a
3: lot of um remixes made already uh you can
2: find them on youtube
0: so yeah. uh, i don't i really don't think i want to rewatch that
1: <laughs> at all uh, what about euron Greyjoy? we got to talk about him oh, oh you mean, you mean uh, like yeah exactly like he looked like he was in like a good pro- like a production of i don't know pirates of penzance yeah, yeah, so, yeah. but like a but like an edgy one <laughs> right <Yeah.
3: laughs> i think they're trying to make him like evil oberon they're like we really we miss oberon martell we can't bring Pedro Pascal back from the dead until the Night King gets uh, south of the wall. So, uh, you know, let's, let's make Euron Cause yeah, he just got not only a costume makeover, a lot of new eyeliner, but also just complete personality infusion. And, uh, Pilo Esbeck, the actor who plays him is quite charismatic, um, in his other projects. So I was actually kind of surprised last year that they didn't really get that character to land. Um, whether or not he's landing this year, I couldn't tell you, but he's certainly, they're certainly like trying something different with him for sure.
2: Vice called him the Donald Trump of Game of Thrones, which is no, pretty funny. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's
0: way more roguishly charming or is roguishly charming at all compared to Donald Trump.
2: But I do think that, um, I do think that Jamie and him are headed for a little hand-to-hand combat, right? I mean, that seems that seems fairly obvious,
1: especially after the hands joke.
3: Hand-to-golden-hand combat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're gonna they're gonna like battle over Cersei or something. I mean, you know, oh right, which which feels hey, that, that's that I, that sounds exciting. I'm I'm into that. Uh, yeah. Joanna, I'm I'm curious, you know, just kind of considering this whole episode. Um, uh, you know, I know you've written about it, and people should go read it. But like, what would you say was the most kind of like the biggest Easter egg, or the most surprising thing, or the sort of the most telling thing about like where this story could be headed? Was there anything in this episode that really felt like it was indicating something about the, the future of the series?
3: Yeah, I would say what I'm considering to be a future vision from Bran of the Army of the Dead. Um, I think this is more evident on, on the big screen, certainly to my eyes it was, um, that when you see this sort of army of the dead marching with all these giants and other things, that they're walking on green grass. And that's a crazy thing to see because in the all of history of Westeros, the army of the dead has never been south of the wall. So, you know, if they're marching on green grass, they're definitely south of the wall. So uh there's no proof so far that everything the brand sees of the future. Last year he saw Cersei's wildfire before it happened. So we know he can see the future. There's no proof that everything he sees of the future must come true. So maybe this is like a possible future sort of vision. But uh, to me, that felt like a huge game changer. The, the episode really hit it too with like Jim Broadbent's character who kept saying like all this has happened before and it'll happen again, but the wall has been there for 8,000 years. So we're fine. I mean, to bring it back to Mike's Trump analogy, like the wall is this big, like subject of conversation throughout the episode. We got the wall. We're fine. Uh, Sansa says a similar thing. The wall is there. We don't have to worry about the army of the dead undead. But if um, Bran's vision is true, then I'd say the wall is not going to last till the end of Game of Thrones. And then, you know, Westeros has to grapple with what that looks like.
1: So The problem is the wall isn't transparent because if you drop a sack of drugs over it, right? it's going to hurt someone. So, so you would just it knock- has to come down and be rebuilt. <laughs> you could have a Night King climbing right up that wall. You'd never know.
2: <laughs> they should have thought of that. No. When they really built good. it. Yeah. it really Speaking of 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 like real world analogs, I had just read that horrifying New York Magazine story about how like climate change we're all completely doomed, and I couldn't help watching this episode just thinking it's just an inverted version of like what's actually happening to us all, but instead <laughs> right. like summer is coming and we are all just fucked. <laughs> right. Like yeah. the Night King is like is on on
1: fire. Game of Thrones found its 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 best allegory yet is yes it's just yeah, yeah we're all doomed.
0: And then for escapism from our daily horrors, we watched Twin Peaks, which is uh, baffling instead of uh, escapists.
3: Also very horror filled this week. Um, it was the oh. most, it was the most violent episode of Twin Peaks ever. I mean, like maybe no, definitely Fire Walk with Me is kind of more a little more disturbing. But this was a very violent episode of Twin Peaks that is getting compared to Clockwork Orange and a number of other things. And it was really it was actually like. Harder to watch the Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is usually the most brutal show, you know. You're gonna watch in a given week, but watching Twin Peaks directly after, I was like, "God, this is this is too violent for me." So, but you, know.
2: Joanna, can you can you explain who is Richard Horn? I, the 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 young man who's doing all this horrifying stuff. By the way, doesn't it feel it feels a little throwbacky? Like you don't see violence like this on TV, yeah? Anymore, I don't. You know what I mean? There's something yeah. like he's kind of a little anachronistic yeah this sort of like just straight up like men beating up women stuff you're just like god almighty
3: there are other um things about that episode that felt anachronistic to me like that there was a dumb ditzy blonde character which i feel like you don't really see on anything anymore but i was like really this this is there nothing else going on this is just a dumb blonde okay it's interesting Um,
2: that lynch is just not in pc culture of uh 2017 for better or worse i mean sometimes i think that makes the show kind of more interesting than yeah. a lot of other stuff but there's some points where i'm like okay problematic like yeah. you know
3: uh richard horn though the show has not like officially officially confirmed it i believe like the most uh, prevalent theory is that he is audrey horn's son and then there's like the the scarier implication that um you know given some of the things that have been said this season that perhaps Audrey Horn, when she was, like, I don't know, comatose in the hospital or something like that after the explosion at the end of Twin Peaks, um, was perhaps actually assaulted by um, Evil Cooper. So maybe oh, he's God. the product of that, that he's, like, Evil Cooper's son with uh, Sherilyn Fenn's character, Audrey Horn, is the wow. most prevalent theory, but it is not been confirmed. But he is at least, uh, you know, his – Audrey Horn's parents are his grandparents, her only other sibling is Johnny Horn, who I don't think was, you know, having kids, but maybe he was. So it really feels like this has to be her son. But we haven't seen her, Sherilyn Fenn, in the series yet. So, um,
2: but we think that she'll that she'll come back. She's not dead, right? She's Audrey? not
3: dead, and Sherilyn Fenn is confirmed for the this series. But I don't know if she's just going to come back in the finale or something. I don't know. You know, Lynch could do anything. I I cannot predict.
1: Can <laughs> what I ask a do? a kind of um, perhaps embarrassing question? As someone who has never seen a full episode of Twin Peaks ever, oh, is there like a narrative here? Is there like a, are we, are we telling a story or is it just kind yeah. of like impressionistic weird stuff? No, the thing that's always been great about
2: it, and Joanna, tell me if you disagree, but it's always been a weird mix of like kind of regular old um, detective story, right. kitchen sink, whatever, and then really, really weird, abstract kind of metaphysical stuff. But that has to do with the with the plot in some sense. It does plug in. Only Joanna understands how it plugs in. I have no <laughs> idea. I just it washes over me. But she could actually tell you like the difference between the two, the white and the black lodge. I was read that in your article. I didn't even know there were two lodges, Joanna, when I read that.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's the thing is there's David Lynch is one mastermind behind the show, but then there's also Mark Frost, who uh, I think is really deep on the mythology and and the soap opera and murder mystery aspect of the show. So especially the original series really feels like a Combined effort of like a. If you watch the original series, it feels like a throwback soap. And then overlaid, you know, over it is this weird Lynchian surrealism. And so it's just this weird mixture of the two. And I think that's Frost and Lynch working together. Frost wrote this. Novelization, this book called *Secret History of Twin Peaks* that came out uh, at the end of last year, I believe, or maybe early this year, and uh, it's just all nitty gritty mythology stuff. So they have really thought through the details of this universe. There's just a lot of weirdness <laughs> laid over it. So um, the the bit, you know, the main mystery originally was who killed Laura Palmer, what happened to Laura Palmer. Famously, I would say the main mystery of this one is where is dale cooper and sort of how do we how do we find him and get him where he needs to be and who's the real cooper would you say that's right mike i don't know I, yeah we we know the audience knows but the, the characters in the show are trying to figure it all out
2: so well and how and then even for the audience like can he ever get back to himself and be right. re re reassembled as like one good person instead of like <laughs> evil. I mean, it's so crazy, It's, I mean, but it's, it, it's, it works though. Kind of. I mean, I don't know what happened in the God of light with the nuclear, all that stuff. I have no idea what any of that meant, but it was amazing to watch. I mean, some of it's very sort of like Kubrickian. You're just like, okay, I don't know what's happening now. Again, Joanna, you probably know
1: because well, you read that book.
3: Maybe, but you know, or, or I can take my best guess and I'll probably be wrong, but the, the, the comparison I like to make or or the metaphor I particularly like for this season of Twin Peaks is it feels like Lynch and Frost every week are mixing us a cocktail and it's a different cocktail every week and it's gonna be a different ratio of like weirdness to soap opera to mystery to comedy to what have you and yeah. it's clear that there are certain sto- you know Lynch just shot all this footage in sort of like this big messy way and then um, you know the two of them are sort of putting together each episode uh with like you know this one has a dash of bitters this one has like a whole glug of vodka or whatever because there are storylines like jerry horn being high and lost in the forest or dr jacoby like giving his youtube rants they really have nothing to do with the main plot and are just sort of like sprinkled in there i think when the episode needs a little bit more levity or something like that so yeah. it's just really fascinating that you could get episode eight which was completely bonkers and weird and surreal and everyone was just scratching their head over it you get episode nine which really focused a lot on Gina Ashbrook's character Bobby Briggs, who was like the worst character of the original series, and then has been like totally redeemed by this return in a way that no TV revival has really ever used the passage of time to show you the way in which a character has changed. It was like felt like a really emotional episode. I and then know. episode ten is this like yeah. brutally violent exploration of domestic violence. Cause it's not just the Richard Horn character, right? It's like the Amanda Seyfried plot and like all of that. There's just a lot of brutality towards women in this episode. And so, um, it's just, it's a different show every week, but the same characters and plots, and I don't know how they're pulling it off, but they are. And, um, not, not all episodes are great, but the whole experiment I think is fabulous.
2: Do you think, can I ask you this, Joanna? Do you think that Kyle McLaughlin will win the Emmy for best actor?
3: For his abs alone in this week's episode? I mean, yeah, He should. Um, no, more seriously, he's playing like, he's played three different characters in this.
2: He's, he's uh, playing three characters. Now, one of them is pretty annoying. I, I, my brother is like, just finally just given up that Dougie Jones is like a character that's going to continue to exist. Um... And I feel a little bit bad for uh, Naomi Watts, like she's got the sort of least re- rewarding or or least forgiving role in this. But as evil Cooper, he's incredible I never imagined that Kyle could could play evil that way. and And any type of sort of technical like all right, he's doing three roles is is kind of amazing. I, and I don't you think people would just love to for it's like it would be like a lifetime achievement like for the first one and for this one, like you are the man.
3: The timing's a little weird, right? Because, it, you know, the Emmy nominations won't be until months and months and months after this season wraps up next year. That's when Twin Peaks will be eligible. I think if we see Kyle McLaughlin, if, if the, the, original flavor dale cooper comes back a little bit more before the season's over so we really see him play like three to four characters this season yeah um i think that will further cement his chances if he's just dougie and evil until the end i I don't know but i think maybe revisiting that old character that people loved so much a bit more in this series um might help you know, land what you say that like lifetime achievement sort of we he, remember you from when you first wowed us, and here you're doing this other amazing thing too, all in the same show
2: and he was nominated twice for Emmy's uh for the original twin peaks and uh and he was also uh he won a golden globe so there's uh there's a track record there I anyway, he's got my vote. it's gonna I be very hard that. to topple Kyle and i think uh, and D- David Lynch is almost the best supporting actor in the whole show.
3: Uh yeah, David Lynch or Miguel Ferrer, I don't know, one of those two. <laughs> yeah. They're both amazing, so yeah.
2: Uh and Jim Belushi is in it for some reason and I can't even believe he's alive <laughs> personally. <laughs>
0: Before we leave TV behind entirely, I this is uh, kind of going back to the Game of Thrones beat, but I wondered if we could talk about the new series from David Benioff and D.B. Weiss that got announced yesterday that's going to HBO, where it's a uh, about an alternate history of the Civil War. It's No, it's about a third Civil War uh, in which the East South basically never surrendered. Uh, Joanna, you wrote about it on VF.com yesterday. There was kind of a fascinating, immediate Twitter backlash to it. Yeah. Um, how are we feeling about this show? You know, I, I will tell you
3: that kind of the last two people that I want exploring racial dynamics in America are wise and many off with all due respect to their to their you know their genius because I think they are very talented um they what's interesting to me about the backlash is that the ba- you know the twitter backlash sort of the twitterati think that their backlash is going to change anything about HBO's decision, which, like, it's not.
0: Do people like, really believe
3: that? The, oh, so many people were like, well, this show's never going forward. Have you seen the backlash? I was like, are you kidding me? You think HBO is going to deny Weiss and off anything at this point? You know, no, that's not going to happen. Um, go, you know, some good news is that they've hired Nichelle Tramble Spellman and Malcolm Spellman, uh, who are, um, you know, non-white writers to sort of bolster. And then they made sure that that was a big part of their announcement, you know, to be like, it's not just these two white guys, it's other people <laughs> telling the story. Um, You know, it was part of the announcement. It was part of all the quotes coming out of Weiss and Benioff and Casey Bloys of HBO. And so I think there was just sort of this preemptive defense. They knew that there was going to be some blowback on this. Um But I don't know. I, I, it doesn't feel like the right thing for them. to. I mean, first of all, I would recommend they take a vacation after a game of Thrones, to be honest with you. Like this is a grueling show. I feel like they should have taken a couple years off, but if they want to strike while the iron's hot, I feel like there's a number of other, like try to do a movie, try to do something like maybe don't dive right back into another HBO series that will inevitably be, be so closely compared to game of Thrones. So those are my thoughts.
0: Richard and Mike, did you guys follow this news yesterday?
1: Um, I did a little bit. I I saw a kind of funny tweets about it, like, you know, they're linking to the thing about like HBO to do a show, like imagining if the South w- or, you know, like or something and they're like, that's that, that, that sure exists. It's called The Wire or like, you know, people talking about <laughs> Ava DuVernay's 13th, the documentary, you know, so there were th- th- that kind of pointed stuff. Um, I think it was just I think in some ways it had more to do with the wording of the press release, you know, imagine a world where, you know, sort of the race has prevailed or whatever. Um but i don't know i you know i absolutely understand the sort of concerns about it um i i also feel like the tendency to really jump on something that we don't really know very much about at all you know you saw it kind of with something like to the bone where a, a, a kind of poorly cut trailer came out and everyone's like oh that movie is going to be offensive to anorexia and eating disorders and it was like well okay i mean we, we I, a little bit of preemptive like negative anticipation of something is warranted and is it is, is part of the conversation we have about these things at this point and they wouldn't release press releases if they didn't want conversation about it but this kind of absolute cut and dry absolutely not it's going to be terrible it's like well you you they're probably right that it is that's going to be problematic but like let's you know hey look ryan murphy did i in my admittedly white male opinion,
2: did a pretty good job with People versus OJ and and using that strategy of making sure he had enough you know people in the room who could speak authoritatively from various perspectives. So, um, and these guys, you know, that's a hell of a track record. Game of Thrones. So I'm cautiously interested. I mean, personally, it sounds a little bit nightmarish to me. The same way that The Handmaid's Tale is not my idea of like a fun mm-hmm. evening. Do you know what I mean? Like I just I don't I just I don't know, like like actual slavery was bad enough, and we're gonna do like alternate reality slavery. I don't. It's just for me, that's not like a fun Sunday night necessarily, but maybe it will be a uh, really, really great and and demand to be watched. You know, I I I I would tend to worry with somebody with guys who have uh, had this much success with something that's ultimately as seriously as we all take it, like a frivolous fantasy thing. That when they get, like, serious, they're going to get real serious. Yeah. And that would be my concern, is it just could be, like, a thudding yeah. thing. Because cre- similar, you know, I,
1: anyway, I don't know. Creeping self-importance, too. Yeah, you, you know. that's like, what
2: I would be... Concerned about? I mean, they people are already taking Game of Thrones internally uh, a
1: little too seriously, in my humble opinion.
0: After we talked about it for like fifteen minutes, (laughs) yes, we are part of that problem.
1: Well, I I mean, when Ed Sheeran has to quit Twitter because he dared to show up for a few, right? Like it's like it's it's a fantasy show. I mean,
3: apparently, well, according to Ed Sheeran, that's fake news that he was going to quit Twitter anyway. But who knows if you want to believe a ginger. Maybe, but um, the um, I think another sort of mark again you know, I, I agree entirely with Richard that, like, I'm a little tired of us prejudging projects entirely based on, like, the log line. You know, it's just, it feels like, I don't know, see the thing and then have an informed opinion on it. Um, that being said, I think another sort of mark against this project Confederate uh, is that Coulson Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad, which is an alternative, like, view of slavery in the Civil War, like an alt history book, uh, you know, came out so recently was so massively successful and award-winning, you know, and from, uh, you know, an African-American writer that it felt like, it feels like we just had to, you know, why not adapt this or something, you know what I mean?
0: It's just sort of like. Well, it is being adapted uh, by Barry Jenkins. Right. uh, For Amazon. Okay, yeah. yeah. So So like. They're going to have some pretty fierce competition from, you know, the director of Moonlight.
3: Okay, so more accurately, why play in that pool if that pool is already <laughs> being dominated by this? You know, so like, and
1: I would I, so much rather see the Barry Jenkins show. You exactly. know, like well, if you'll given a choice, see so.
0: both, which is uh, you know we'll see who wins in that head to head. Well,
2: what what would we what would we ask them to adapt next, Benny I Uff, have and Weiss? A great if we
3: idea for this. Oh, okay. David Benioff wrote an amazing novel called City of Thieves in 2008. It's so good. I don't love everything that David Benioff has written as a novelist. Um, You know, The 25th Hour was adapted into a good movie. But, like, City of Thieves is a great story based on – like based a little bit on his own, like, Russian family heritage and stuff like that. And it's – It's a World War II novel. It's like it's I have when I was a bookseller, I sold hundreds and hundreds of copies of that book. I never sold a copy of that book that someone didn't come back and tell me they loved it. You can give it to grandparents, you can give it to kids. Everyone loves this book that David Benioff wrote. He should adapt that into a movie. Like that's what he should do next. And Uh, I'm I want
1: their take on the Stonewall riots. (laughs) 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 Just (laughs) kidding.
3: I don't know what, I don't know what DBY should do, but that's what David Benioff should do. And I actually kind of think they should do something separately. It's sort of like when Key and Peel were like, we're finishing our show. We love each other, but we're going to do things separately right now, you know, and like uh, Keanu, the thing they did together was okay, but what Jordan Peel did on his own was like amazing. And, and King and Michael Key is also doing, you know, so I, I feel like, you know, divide the team up and sort of conquer a little bit and then come back together or something like that. I, that's what I would say.
2: I want some just something with Maisie Williams. Just the Maisie Williams series.
3: I don't be, know. Uh, she just kills because, people all.
2: day. Uh, you
0: know, uh, Sophie Turner is basically the future of X-Men. Like she's kind of got her next seven years lined up, but Maisie Williams seems more of like an unknown factor. Well, uh, Maisie's also in an X-Men movie. She's just
3: in a different X-Men movie. So they're oh God, both right. oh my God. uh, you know, shackled for better or worse to the X-Men franchise, right? I have now. seen no the greatest minds of my
2: generation yeah. destroyed by X-Men
1: Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus.
0: Richard, you reviewed Dunkirk for VanityFair.com. Your review, I think, is really lovely and elegant, which it seems like the movie itself is also pretty elegant. Uh, you didn't write the whole thing about Harry Styles, which I was surprised. I thought that was what we had, had agreed to, is that it would just be about what he does in the movie. But uh, tell me how the rest of the movie distracted you from Harry Styles.
1: Well, there there will be another Harry Styles Dunkirk post uh, written by me, I believe, on the website of Friday the twenty first. So <laughs>
0: that's true. Fear not. I, I did expect your review to be about more than Harry, but I forgot that we actually had you writing a whole Harry post.
1: Yeah. So the movie, you know, I don't know if anyone was interested in in this kind of backstage drama, but anyway, the the, sc- the way the screenings were set up, there was a, a Monday morning screening. I was out of town, so I had I missed it. Then all these reviews came out, and I'm sitting there looking on my phone at the airport, just like kicking myself. And then sort of over the next two days, I saw the movie on Wednesday night, that kind of disappointment and for, sort of like FOMO or whatever, like kind of coalesced or hardened into a sort of like determination to to be the dissenting voice. You know, there have been a couple people who were like not as into it. And but there were a lot of people calling it a masterpiece and everything. So I went on Wednesday night, not hoping to not like it. Of course, you always want to like a movie, but like just sort of thinking I might be the contrarian. Um, I'm not the contrarian. I thought it was great. I saw, you know, I got to I was lucky enough to see it on the 70 millimeter IMAX uh at Lincoln Square here in New York and got a good center seat cuz I showed up an hour early cuz I'm a crazy person and it was just it's it's it is exciting it's because it is, you know, an adventure action war movie but it's really something much different than that. It's an it's kind of an art film. It has this real sense of poetry to it. Um it's not really conventionally narrative, um you know, and not that Nolan has always been conventionally narrative before. Obviously Memento, Inception have, you know, sort of devices that they use. Um, but this is not Save and Private Ryan even, where you have, you know, this kind of troop of characters that you follow. Uh there are people that we are following through this kind of nightmare, but um we don't really know anything about them. Uh and it's just I don't know. It's 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 an it's a really interesting kind of operatic um, art piece.
0: How does it compare to you to, like... I mean, are are Christopher Nolan fans going to like it? Do we care if they like it? I mean, these are kind of, like, some of the most, like, uh, intense fans on the internet who I think Warner Brothers is counting on to really come out for this. But uh, how are they going to feel about this, like, art film opening in a big summer blockbuster slot?
1: Well, I mean, one of the... um kind of constant battles on film twitter or sort of on film writing on the internet is is critics again you know and versus nolan fans nolan fans are or some of them many of them are sort of notoriously uh rigid about their love for 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 their director um you know they really won't brook any kind of criticism um so i think the diehards yeah i mean they'll absolutely like it um i think that what i'm kind of what's a little more uncertain uh is yeah what what the sort of mainstream i mean this is a big july release from warner brothers um it's going up against valerian um and the city of a thousand planets the luke basson movie but i don't think that movie is really going to pose any competition to it so really this movie um is kind of the biggest thing going uh it's opening weekend uh and i think people will go see it because the trailers have been effective um you know people tend to like a war movie hacksaw ridge did pretty well um I just don't know what they're going to walk away with it feeling. And, you know, when you read box office reporting and they talk about the cinema score, so the, you know, audience exit polling, um, and they give it a letter grade. I'm very curious to see what that is because I think that this movie could really suffer from people who don't like it's kind of cold approach to this stuff. Um, or, you know, we'll you know, not really like it and then won't tell friends to see it. So, um, I don't think that this thing is a sure bet at all, actually. Um, and I'm at so I think somewhat surprised that Warner brothers, Let this vision be what it is, though I guess, you know, Nolan has earned them enough money over the years that uh, they they owed him one.
0: Yeah. Go ahead, Joanna. Well, you know, I I think
3: Katie and I, as our like dispatches from real America, as we realize the Bay Area (laughs) might be, uh, the, the dispatches we like to give, what's interesting to me, and this might just be my particular group of friends, but the people that I know here are actually more excited about Valerian than they are about Dunkirk for some weird reason. Um, I don't know what that is, but I, I know that Valerian has its huge detractors, but there just might be something about the the fifth element lovers that they, they think this is what they're going to get again from it. Um, and it feels a little bit more summary than Dunkirk does. Um, because Dunkirk definitely feels like it should be a November movie, and so I'll be interested to see if if the Nolan name alone will will carry Dunkirk at the box office, or the Harry Styles of it all will carry Dunkirk at the box office, or if you know Besson is going to have some weird unexpected win this weekend. It'll be fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think another interesting thing about its box office Dunkirk's box office prospects potentially, um, is that this is a very British story. Um, there's not a lot of um, there's really almost no exposition explaining what this evacuation is really when it is Um, you know it came in an early point during the war not not toward the end Um, so i wonder if that i think that could be isolating to american audiences but that but also on the flip side of that there's very little dialogue in the movie it's it's you know there's i mean you know we talk about harry styles being in the movie and all these other people they barely speak it's it's mostly just action so it translates internationally really well. I mean, you have a couple subtitles or a little bit of dubbing, and otherwise, it's just visual feast. Um, so, I, I think that that could help its chances. So, I'm I'm I, I, not only am I curious because you know of the of the subject matter, but also because this is a big, expensive studio movie made on seventy millimeter film, which doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't have anything to do with superheroes. It's not a franchise. So, in some ways, there is a little bit of a sense that this movie is. Uh, you know, fighting for the for the soul of of, of filmmaking or something, or, or Hollywood filmmaking, anyway.
0: Well, and this is the second time Warner Brothers has been in this position this summer. They came out with Wonder Woman earlier this year, which, you know, tried to defy everything about how, like, women can't open movies and no one cares about female superheroes overseas and kind of broke every single expectation there. So if they can pull it off twice in one summer, that's a lot to contract, to congratulate themselves for. How World Wars saved Warner
1: Brothers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh they're Everyone gonna change it to loves w in yeah.
3: um
1: yeah and i and I think the other thing that we you know for our purposes that we, you know is definitely worth talking about is um its awards chances, which definitely um you know we've talked about this movie before in you know past months months ago, and uh I had mentioned that a publicist had reached out to me after I wrote something about the trailer saying it's not a drama, it's an action you know what thriller uh I don't know what the heck that publicist is talking about i mean it's it's this is a this is an awards movie, i mean it's really artful. Um, I mean, the technical categories, I feel like it's cinematography, it's score, it's editing. It's editing is so crucial to the the movie's success. It's sound mixing. You know, all of that is really there, I think, in in a kind of Mad Max way. I also think that it would be kind of crazy. I don't know what's coming down the pike in in the fall. And, you know, there are only so many director slots. But if Nolan, I think, is a really good shot at it right now.
0: We've said that so many times before. It's like it's it's crazy when you realize how much of a like Oscar bridesmaid he's been over the course of his career. Like even though after The Dark Knight getting snubbed kind of helped inspire the expanded best picture field. Like eva like Inception did pretty well, but uh Interstellar didn't. Uh he still has a tough time breaking through somehow.
3: Well, but there's no you know don't tell me if this reveals some big surprise, Richard, but there's no genre storytelling attached to this one, right? And that's that's a first for Nolan is that correct
1: oh no they're fighting aliens
0: okay. yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the uh, um oh shit the Tom Cruise movie that I'm forgetting the title of I can't make this joke a live before. die repeat or whatever yeah it's whatever that movie's actually called <laughs> uh,
1: um, uh, no you're right Joanna there's no this is a straightforward r- you know true life historical drama or thriller um and I think that in that sense some awards voters would be in the academy or anywhere else Might see this as his first, you know, capital S serious movie.
3: Exactly. And so that might be, you know, the thing that could break him through this time if there's no spinning tops or, um, black holes or whatever or batman or whatever you know i love i love a lot of those movies i'm not looking down my nose at genre but as we've talked in the podcast before academy voters so often do and so if you know if nolan's like oh fine you want a war movie i'll give you a weird arty war movie enjoy harry styles is in it <laughs> yeah
0: Well, Richard, in your review, you drew a comparison to Schindler's List as kind of the movie that had like a former genre guy, uh, you know, helped him take himself seriously or helped the industry take him seriously. But I feel like the even closer parallel is Saving Private Ryan, it's opening in late July, the way that movie did, like it's kind of similarly positioning itself. Do you see the comparisons there?
1: I do. I mean, I think that both films are, you know, obviously from huge blockbuster directors whom studios love. And 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 both movies, Saving Private Ryan, especially in its opening, you know, famously, you know, technically marvelous uh, D-Day invasion scene. Well, they're both on beaches for one, but uh, the the filmmaking is there's just a lot of technique being applied, and it looks really interesting and sort of washed out, and and it's sort of saying similar things about the tone of war and battle, and and yeah, so I see the similarities that far. But then Spielberg has a real narrative to tell, and it's a it's a kind of a road movie. It's a detective movie in a sense um there are characters who are sort of colorful and some maybe not larger than life, but you know vibrant. There is none of that in 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 Dunkirk really, so I think that it's a that's really different in that sense and I also think that they're at very different points in their careers just if if only because Spielberg had already had Schindler's list you know and had already had already won an oscar in ninety five years prior um I think that while dunkirk doesn't seem as personal a film uh to nolan as schindler's did to spielberg um i think that there's clearly a lot of reverence and passion in the in the project uh, which while we've seen him make incredible you know sort of curios before nolan has always been a, a little bit of a, of a cold fish you know and and in this i think we're sort of with something cracks open um, so I, to me, even though the the, the the plot elements are certainly different, um, I, I think it's it's more similar to Schindler's List in terms of the, the narrative of his career.
0: What I find fascinating about uh, kind of the Dunkirk Oscar question, and this was in uh, the piece that Chris Lee for, wrote for us uh, at VF.com, just about what his Oscar strategy is, is that a big reason it's opening in summer is because Christopher Nolan hates screeners. And when Interstellar came out, he just refused to let them send screeners for it, which uh, I think probably really did help hurt its chances with the Academy. Uh, so now he's going to really be encouraging all these voters to see it on the big screen, which from everything I can tell is really the way to see it. And then by the time uh, screener season starts, it'll be out on blue Ray blu-ray already. Um, so, I mean, for me, that just gives me the sense that it's going to have an edge this time. Like interstellar really faltered in the Oscar race. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm rooting for Dunkirk at this point, which we'll see how that pans out when all the fall movies come out and we'll see what else is in the competition.
1: And also I mentioned it already, but Hacksaw Ridge as, as that movie proved, last year you could people will forgive mel fucking gibson if you tell a dramatic story about world war ii people love world war ii uh you know it because it was a righteous war whatever so i think that that's also a major advantage that the movie has
3: but is this i you know i should have asked you this earlier but is this i mean you you keep saying it's not saving private ryan is it more than thin red line like is it that already is that what we're looking at
1: it's it's not so metaphysical. There's not okay. so much introspection. It's 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 not really concerned with that. I think that where that comes in is sort of in subtler sort of visual motifs and things like that. But no, I mean, Malik is is really contemplating God and you know eg- existential stuff, and that this Dunkirk is not that. I mean, okay. but it is in some we're, we're ways closer to Thin Red Line than it is Private Ryan. Yeah,
3: I'm excited
0: this is great yeah me too i'm uh i'm seeing it in 70 millimeter uh tonight by myself it's gonna be intense Yay. i know
1: and I harry know. is good by the way yeah yeah he i hear great. he's
0: uh i hear he really holds himself well guys
3: yep. i don't care at all about one direction but i love harry styles based on like saturday night live and talk shows and cordon and everything i just i'm all here for whatever harry styles wants to do for the next many decades so.
0: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. And please find us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it. We love hearing from you at our Twitter account at Little Gold Men. And we're all on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan. He had to go, but you know where to find him. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best reaction to the extensive New York Times interview that Donald Trump gave goes to Richard Lawson.
1: Is there like a narrative here?